A special thanks goes out to the folks at Anchor.fm for bringing you this podcast. Hello again, everyone. Today, the conclusion of Jessica Thatcher Moore's story, The Berwyn Incident. I'm Tom Zania, and this is Tom Reader's Story. Coming to you almost live, it's time once again for Tom Reads Your Story, the number one spoken word podcast on the web for audiobooks, social media posts, current events, and just plain whatever. So let's start the show. For the next half hour, I'll be your host. I'm voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. good professional sound for your podcast? I'm Tom Zania, voice actor and podcast host of Tom Reads Your Story. I can give you the sound you're looking for for your podcast intros and advertisements at the price and turnaround you need. So don't hesitate and send me a message at TomReadYourStory at Yahoo.com. And we are back. Thanks for coming around, folks. I'm glad you're here. So this is part three, the conclusion of, I think, one of the best storyteller versions of a true story. Uh, A lot of these UFO stories sound a little eh, unbelievable, whereas this I believe sounds very believable. Um, It's about two people who worked together on a project, uh, stumbled their way through it with stops and starts and a lot of disbelief. And, you know, just stick. It's it's a story also of just sticking with it, you know, (laughs) of sticking with, uh, a dream or a certain project you're working on. Uh, and I think it does very well at that. And I, I hope you've enjoyed it. I do have one announcement. I'm going to be off next week and possibly the week after that, but I'm not sure yet. Uh, you'll obviously know when it happens. Uh, but definitely next week I will uh, not uh, be with you. Now, here is why. I uh, have accepted uh, a short romance novel to narrate as an audiobook, and I need to get started on it, and I need some time, and there's just so little time in a day when you're trying to work a job, you're try- trying to deal with noise around the house like dogs who are next door, and uh, so I, I kind of need next week to uh, to get some work done. And if it turns out that I need the following week, I'll take that as well. Uh, so that is that. And uh, for you regular listeners, I'm sorry about that. I, I do appreciate you sticking with me. Uh, but uh, let's just go on with the, the end of uh, this story, uh, the Berwyn Incident, the conclusion. 
by Jessica Thatcher Moore. Here it is. Scott wandered around on that shelf for over two hours, slowly discounting 90% of the theories that existed on the Internet. All of the research and information to date had focused on Kader Bronwyn, the mountain closest to the village of Landrillo. But the nurse had clearly been looking at Kader Berwyn, which no one could have seen from the village. His curiosity was later tinged with anger as he thought how hoaxers, lazy researchers, and people with fixed agendas buried the facts. As a youngster, Scott was into Star Trek, not Star Wars, science fiction, not fantasy. He didn't believe aliens walk among us, because how could they if they had evolved on a different planet with a different atmosphere? But he did believe that our infinitesimally large universe teems with extraterrestrial life, that on rare occasions certain species visit planet Earth, and that the elite few who really run the world, the shadowy figures pulling the strings on their puppets in Parliament, were well aware of this. UFO research turned out to be compelling work, and with Margaret's guidance, Scott returned every few weeks to the Berwyn Mountains to continue what he had started. He hiked up the passes that had been inaccessible to Margaret and searched for signs of disturbed earth, finding nothing. He even tramped through heather for miles to the spot Pat had been looking at and moved around with a headlamp powered by a car battery until it was dark while a friend videoed his experiment from where Pat had been standing. The headlamp was just a speck on the horizon and could never, no matter what the weather conditions, be described as a huge pulsating orb. When rival Andy Roberts published his version of events in a book, The UFOs That Never Were, Scott was incensed. Roberts wrote that, on the evidence available, it is certain that the nurse saw the poachers with their lamping lights at the point they met and talked to the police. But the hunting party, or poachers, weren't even on the mountain then. Scott wanted to scream. Roberts's book was a blow. Suddenly, it felt like even Pat's testimony, the most incontrovertible account of a UFO, was being disregarded as bunk. If Margaret and Scott couldn't find another witness willing to put their name into the public fray, they feared Roz Welsh would go down as Roz wasn't in the annals of history. They went back to Margaret's reams of notes. Multiple people, not just the nurse, had claimed to see a huge glowing circle hovering on the mountain that night. But they were all either dead or uncontactable. Scott felt certain that nothing had crashed on the mountain. There was simply no evidence for it, but nor was there much evidence for anything else. The absence of official documents relating to the incident was remarkable and, Scott felt, reason to suspect a cover-up. Scott wrote multiple times to the British Geological Survey requesting information on the incident but was told they had nothing. He wrote to the police and Royal Air Force. The police told him that they had destroyed their records of the night, in line with policy, and the Royal Air Force claimed to have no reports of UFOs that night. 
it would not be the first time a UFO event had been covered up by authorities in Britain. Prime Minister Winston Churchill had taken the issue so seriously that he commissioned weekly reports during the 1950s, the dawning of the space age, and insisted UFO sightings be kept secret to prevent mass panic. Scott worried it may have already been too late to obtain documentary evidence. When he learned that Roberts had acquired a copy of the police log, as well as other documents relating to that night, thanks to some sort of preferential access to the British Geological Survey, Scott was livid. He filed a Freedom of Information request immediately, but received a response saying the documents didn't exist. This compounded his feeling that everyone was conspiring to conceal the truth. A television producer contacted him to say she was filming a series about paranormal activity called Britain's Closest Encounters, and that one episode focused on the Berwyn incident. Could she interview him? Instinct told him not to get involved. While it was a chance to set the record straight, it also posed a risk. Too often, the mainstream media made heroes of the debunkers and portrayed serious ufologists as nutty conspiracists. But the television producer was persistent, and Scott eventually agreed to an interview. He explained that the UFO had been on an entirely different mountain to the one everyone had searched. He said the nurse couldn't possibly have been looking at the hunting party or the policeman, as Andy Roberts claimed, and shared his own theory. It wasn't a crash, he told the researcher. It was a landing. Something came down onto the mountain that night, he said. The day the documentary was due to air, Scott received a phone call from the director. The good news is that the program is on tonight. The bad news is that you're not in it. Scott watched the film with rising anger. Roberts was the star of the show. He explained how a meteor shower and an earthquake had morphed over the years into an alien craft crash landing on the mountain. Fantastic stories, wonderful mythology, but there's no evidence, Robert said. It's the bloody Andy Roberts show, Scott roared. Soon after this, Margaret suffered a stinging defeat. A different television producer was interested in her work, and she shared what she knew about the five professionals who claimed to have seen aliens landing. This television producer was able to verify they had invented the story as an amusing ruse over copious pints of ale. She thought about the old map that had convinced her so easily to believe in them, and how they must have faked it. It was difficult to face the fact that she spent years as the butt of a mean-spirited prank. The principle that guided her to believe that those she had reason to trust had failed her. Margaret was in her late 80s by now. The case had dragged her from the precipice of old age into its challenging center, but still returned periodically to the Berwyn Mountains area to tease out new witnesses. Nevertheless, her energy was waning. She had recently lost her eldest son to a heart attack, followed by her husband, followed closely by her sister and eldest daughter. She blocked out the deaths of her children, filing them away in the same dark recesses of her mind, where she kept the memories of India and civil war. After she lost her husband, she was struck with the knowledge that she would never again be the most important person in someone's life. 
Scott would still call often, but the Berwyn story had gone quiet. Margaret drafted a Lonely Hearts advert for the local paper. Artist-slash-writer seeks 80s car-driving, good-natured, non-religious man. Interests, history, art, politics, UFOs, and travel. No suitors came of it. She lost interest in finding a publisher for the two books she had written and self-published about her lifetime UFO research, Link to the Stars and Who Are They?, and accepted that her glory days were past. Not owning a computer shielded her from the increasingly outlandish, unprofessional, and backstabbing world of ufology. Scott did not have that luxury. It felt as if Roberts, the denier, was always at his heels, galling him by continuing to roll out the same claims that Scott had refuted. Taking one last pass through Margaret's notes, he spotted a record of a phone call with Mike Saville back in 1996, shortly after Margaret had interviewed the nurse. Margaret remembered the interview and the fact that Seville had been living in the south of England at the time. Could they try again to contact him? Scott asked. If genuine, he could be a very significant witness, and one that she had overlooked at the time. Margaret no longer considered herself an active investigator. She was in excellent shape for someone approaching their 90s. But she'd been given many of her books. She tired more easily, and her memories were becoming softer with time. Where she found the strength to say, yes, let's do it, I'll help you, she doesn't know. Perhaps her parents' work ethic, her own enduring curiosity, or her desire to give Scott what he wanted. Margaret thought Seville had been living with his mother in Bournemouth back in the 90s, so with no telephone number or address for him, Scott looked up every Seville in the Bournemouth area and handed Margaret a list. By chance, the first person she called was Seville's mother, who said her son had moved back to Wales. In the summer of 2014, Margaret and Scott met Seville at the farm where he'd been living back in 1974, and he told the story in person. Their whitewashed slate cottage was perched on a steep incline above the village of Lenderfell, where the nurse lived, and it had a clear view of the mountaintops. Seville and his wife were reading when the slate-walled house had started to tremble and shake. Seville stepped out of the front door, where he spotted the bright circular light in front of him. It was orange and had a defined edge like the falling sun. The couple, whose baby was asleep upstairs, were terrified. They bundled the baby into a carrier and rushed to their neighbor's farm, which had a telephone line, to hear reports of mayhem in the village. They then walked back up to Seville's house and, at 9 p.m., they stood gazing at this curious ball of light as it hung on the horizon. The thing had been so huge, they thought the world was coming to an end. At 9.20 p.m., the object sunk down below the horizon and disappeared. Hearing Seville describe this for the first time, Scott could scarcely believe his ears and hurriedly unfolded his ordnance survey maps of the area. He bracketed Seville's and Pat's possible sight lines on the map and then checked the elevation of the hills where they intersected. Sure enough, in between Seville and Kadir Berwin, there was a smaller hill. The mountainside behind it would have been visible to Pat. 
but not to Seville. He could therefore say with some certainty that the object must have dipped down out of Seville's view, but remained on the mountainside at least until 10 p.m. when Pat saw it. The timelines and sightlines dovetailed perfectly. They drove to the spot where the nurse and her daughters had stopped, a spot Scott now knew well. It was overcast, but the peaks were clearly visible. Scott peered through the telescopic sights of his rifle, then studied his ordnance survey map again. Within a couple hundred yards, that is the point where the UFO sat, he said, looking up and tapping the map with satisfaction. Simple geometry suggested that, based on the light cast by the object, it was spherical and huge by human standards, as much as 22 meters in diameter. Scott later went on foot to inspect the location and search for signs of disturbed land. Some 40 years had gone by, he reminded himself, trying to quell the foolish hope that these visitors had left behind some clue. Sure enough, he found nothing but grass, gorse, and sheep and fox poo. He was nevertheless eminently pleased. Seville's interview represented a major breakthrough in the case. Independently corroborated reports of simultaneous sightings like this were unusual and something the debunkers would struggle to ignore. At the end of their interview with Seville, Scott looked fondly at Margaret, his partner, friend, and mentor. This is in the bag, he said to her with a wry smile. Margaret maintained her composure. She had become sage in her old age and was so comfortable with her beliefs that she no longer sought the validation of major breakthroughs. What Seville had told them was just more of what she had already known. Old age was starting to rob her of memories, but it would never take away her passion or convictions. She realized just then that her fear of heights had subsided for the first time since her youth in the Himalayas. Neither she nor Scott had considered it as they drove up the narrow mountain road that day. Postscript. Having compiled all of the available evidence, Scott believes today that a UFO had been landing and taking off repeatedly in the days and weeks leading up to the night of January 1974. Not wishing to generate widespread panic, government intelligence operatives chose the night of the meteor shower to conduct a covert operation to shoo it off, using the meteorites as cover. I know it sounds daft, he concedes with a smile, cradling a cup of tea in a quaint tourist tea room in his hometown of Langollen. He recognizes that the jigsaw puzzle will likely never be complete. Margaret has spent over 60 years trying to make the public see that the universe is more fantastical than we could ever imagine. Her desire to spread the truth about UFOs has not wavered once despite the fact that public opinion has swung against her in her lifetime. In the UK, believed in UFOs is declining, but history shows that humans have long since projected their hopes and fears onto species from other planets. From the 1940s space brothers who could deliver us from the Cold War threat of nuclear annihilation, to the evil aliens of the 1970s whom our leaders conspired to conceal from us. Today, 
the future of humanity is becoming ever less certain. Not a day goes by without a large-scale cyber attack, devastating news of widespread ecosystem collapse, extreme weather, or the ongoing threat of nuclear warfare. If UFOs are an expression of cultural mass hysteria, what place is there for them today? The great-grandmother of British ufology, Margaret doesn't mind that UFO sightings are routinely derided. She believes they pose a threat to our anthropocentric global order. The world of ufology has changed vastly during her time. Researchers who were once part of her fellowship have moved on or died, and the discipline has been transformed by digital technology. Ufology no longer provides the regular sense of meaning and community that Margaret needs. What matters to her most is family. For four generations, no blood relative had shown the slightest interest in her UFO work, dismissing it as harmless bunk. To her surprise, her teenage great-grandson, an electro-funk DJ, recently started asking questions about ufology and expressed a genuine interest in her work. It was the first time anyone in her family had wanted to understand it. Now, when he visits her in Wales, they speak at length about UFOs and other strange phenomena. A sense of ease has settled over her. No one has managed to adequately explain what Pat saw that night. Pat herself, now in her 80s, remains mystified by it. As science continues to unpack the universe's blueprints, Margaret's half-century of research may become a valuable resource, a window onto one of the planet's most enduring mysteries and one of the greatest sagas of our age. And I hope you liked that. That was the Berwyn incident. A good UFO story. Um, and I think more and more people are, are listening to UFO stories, especially since the, uh, the military chased one down. You probably remember seeing that on the news. Uh, but it's, it's one of those controversial things that's been with us for years and years now and that people still sort of uh, snicker at or I think is silly. But uh, I wanted to give you this story, which I think is very nicely written, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it. So. That brings us to the end of yet another episode of Tom Read Your Story. Portions were pre-recorded. Please tell your friends if you enjoyed your visit today because we're always looking for new ones. Thanks, Anchor.fm, for this opportunity. I greatly appreciate it. Remember, I'll be off next week and possibly the week after. Till then, take care, everyone. Bye now. This is Tom Zania. For more information on my availability for your e-learning, commercial, or audiobook project, visit my website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. We hope you visit us again real soon for another episode of Tom Reads Your Story.